what can we learn from our Lutheran forefathers on how to face the challenges of a culture openly hostile to Christianity? Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled For Such a Time as This. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. You'll also find Pastor Will Whedon's article on the monthly Psalter, the free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. We are on the side of science. We want to have the full and complete and honest and forthright description of prenatal human beings to be the one that gets out there. We want to call out the gaslighting, anti-science, dishonest approach. For liberal democracy to work, it requires self-government. And for people to be self-governed, they have to have virtue. And virtue in a kind of a classical tradition and understood even at our founding, the source of virtue was found in religion. But when we open our eyes in death, we will see Jesus. And on that face is a smile, not a scowl. When we close our eyes in death, we will open them and our ears will be filled with the hymns of the angels. A lot of Christians talk about worship as us serving God, but the Lutheran emphasis is that God serves us through his word, through the sacrament. This is Will from Michigan, and I'm a Lutheran high school teacher and football coach. And I love beginning my day listening to Issues Etc. All right, guys, let's go. It's often noted that the politics of progressivism or the American left has a religious fervor. Could it be because the ideas that lie underneath wokeism and progressivism are, in fact, religious ideas. There's a theology at work, and if that's the case, we might want to ask, who is the Jesus of the American left? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Monday afternoon, November the 7th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Peter Burfine will join us. We're going to talk about that issue, the religion of the left, and also Wokeism 101. We'll spend some time with Pastor Roger Peters, He's author of a column for the latest issue of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled Eternal Misconceptions. We'll discuss myths about eternal life, and we'll respond to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. He's authored the book Has American Christianity Failed? Joining us to discuss two issues, the religion of the left and wokeism 101, Pastor Peter Burfind. He's pastor of Agnes Day Lutheran Church in Marshall, Michigan, and Our Savior Lutheran Church in Union City, Michigan. He's author of the books Gnostic America, A Year Crowned with Goodness, and a recent column for The Federalist titled The Left Needs a Jesus. Peter, welcome back. Good to be back. You say that leftism is a religion with an eschatology just as real as John Hagee's. What do you mean by that? What is eschatology? Eschatology is a understanding of where history is going. And in Christianity, we have an eschatology that says that Christ is going to return at the end, and when Christ returns, he's going to make everything right. He's going to make everything better. He's going to redeem the world. The world is going to be a place where the four horsemen of the apocalypse are no longer galloping, where there's no war, there's no poverty, there's no famine, there's no sickness. And as Christians, we have what's known as a horizontal eschatology, meaning we are in our time now, and 
by faith, we look forward to a time when Christ will return and make the world a better place. Now, there is a several different understandings of eschatology, many of them that Lutherans don't agree with, and one of them is this belief that prior to Christ's return, he's going to set up a thousand-year reign on this world where he's going to rule and make this world a better place. Well, there's kind of a subcategory of that known as millenarianism, millenarianism, which believes that the Lord is going to return right now, but he's not going to do it in, a, in an obvious kind of physically manifest way in Jerusalem, the way Hagee would believe, but he's going to do it more through the political movement. And this is a long story that goes all the way back to Joachim of Fior in the early Middle Ages, who argued that there's going to be an age of the Spirit that's going to supplant the age of the Son. And during the age of the Spirit, God will work directly with the elect saints to bring about his kingdom of God as the elect saints bring about a new world order. And philosophers like like Hegel secularized this theory, um, demythologized it, and reconstituted it as political movement. So <laughs> this is all to say that leftists believe that they can make the kingdom of God a reality right now in this world through political movement. And because it's been demythologized, it's essentially saying, we're going to set up everything that Jesus has promised for the end to be an imminent reality right now. And that explains the religiosity of the left. It's not just a simple like view about how politics should go. It's just a belief that we can make the world a better place right now if we're woke. You mentioned the philosopher Hegel. Who are some of the other mm-hmm. prophets of this leftist religion? Well, Hegel is the big one. I mean, and, and I find him so significant because he was a Lutheran pietist. So he absorbed a lot of these pietistic ideas on the optimistic appraisal of what humanity can do to make the world a better place. And a lot of this goes hand in hand with a very Pelagian idea that says that man is capable of purifying first himself. And if we can make ourselves better people by the use of the will and by the use of the innate goodness that God has put in us, why can't we do the same? Why can't this spill over to society and we can make the world a better place? He laid the foundation. Well, Marx was a student of Hegel, one of the young leftist students of Hegel. But I would argue that most of modern philosophy starts with this premise, this premise that we're going to use philosophy to make the world a better place. And there's a very strong political component that you might even find in Mill or, or all these modern political philosophers. And the basic idea is that you got these prophets or you got these thinkers who kind of stand above everything. They kind of think they have a grasp on the meta narrative and have this species sub eternitatis, this ability to look at the whole world and see like the big picture. And you know, like a Hegel will do that, or a Marx will do that, or Mill or, or uh, Weber, or, you know, they, they look at the world from above and they say, ah, this is how the world really works. And I'm going to tell you, you know, once we know how the world really works, then those that follow me will be able to bring, bring about a better world if we just follow my principles. And so they come down from the mountain and declare those, that ideology and then they get their acolytes and their disciples who follow that, and, and then it you know, inevitably fails. But all the modern philosophers end up being that kind of prophet at some level. 
How does the left's theology, such as it is, fail them repeatedly, and what effect does that have on their mental health? <laughs> because they put all their eggs in the basket of their particular ideology. Their, their prophets look at that meta-narrative of how they think the world works or how it should work or how it can work, and then they come down and they say, hey, if we all just adopt this ideology, if we all just work things this way, we can bring about a better world. We can make the world a better place. That imposes a tremendous burden upon the psyche. You know, I mean, it, even Hegel himself talks about that this happens as people have a raised consciousness. They have a heightened consciousness. Well, that is to say that a heightened consciousness or a changed psyche is able to bring about a better world. Well, when the world never gets better, what's the problem? Well, the problem would be the psyche. The problem is that you're not woke enough. You're not raised conscious enough. You're not elect, ultimately. You're not part of the elect. That imposes a tremendous burden on the, on the psyche that I think affects people's mental health. You know, what's the point in, in voting? What's the point in being involved in these activist causes? And I had such uh, high hopes for what this program would do, and it ends up just being another bureaucracy that numbs the mind. So I think that affects a lot of people's mental health, especially in an age when people are dropping away from the faith and looking for these religion substitutes, and they're just failing them. What does the real Jesus mean for the human psyche? So when I talk about, uh, you know, the left needs a Jesus, as I did in that article, they do have a Jesus. And that's the thing is they have the archetype of a Jesus, meaning they have this idea that the world is a problem and that there needs to be a savior in the world. There's a possibility of world salvation. And that ultimately is what Jesus is. Their problem is, is for them, Jesus is a mantle, like an archetype or a mantle that a movement bears on its own. Like Obama said, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Oh, that basically, it's a messianic phrase saying we, humanity, are the messiahs. We're going to save ourselves. Or even, as I mentioned in my article, he said, we can build a kingdom on earth. So that's the leftist Jesus. It's not so much a real person as it is an archetype or a mantle that's born by by those that are going to make the world a better place. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. For instance, a lot of primitive cultures or, or even someone like a Frederick Nietzsche, they don't have that idea that the whole purpose of politics is to make the world a better place, but more of the purpose of politics is just to kind of keep the peace and punish evildoers and run basic government functions. Or a, a Nietzsche would say, you know, when you look at the world and you recognize that it's an evil place, you need to adapt to that reality and just accept it, that that's the way it is. And, and all these idealistic programs, including Christianity, are lumped together to say, you know, you're not dealing with the world as it is, but as you want it to be or hope it to be. So the left has this kind of mantle that they wear to be as their Jesus. And as Christians, we understand, I mean, this is where the incarnation comes in. And this is where the, the non-Gnostic understanding of Jesus comes in, that the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. So that's a very important point. I mean, if nothing else was taken away from this interview, it's this. Because Christians understand that Jesus Christ in the flesh and blood is the world Savior, and that this was completed at Calvary, we have no illusions that we are involved with saving the world. There's a very clear line where Jesus ends and we begin, and that line is the flesh and blood of Jesus. Now, that translates forward to the Church. 
which is to say, when Christians look at the world and say, oh, the world could be a better place, or, you know, how is the world a better place? We go to church, and through the sacrament, through our faith, we recognize that we have a Lord and Savior who sits at God's right hand, who rules over all things for our good, who has saved the world. And that relieves the burden upon us to be responsible for saving the world. We're talking to Pastor Peter Burfind about his column for the Federalist, The Left Needs a Jesus. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On the other side, why does the left's Jesus inevitably fail? What can we learn from our Lutheran forefathers on how to face the challenges of a culture openly hostile to Christianity? Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled For Such a Time as This. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. You'll also find Pastor Will Whedon's article on the monthly Psalter, the free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org deaconess. Working in faith, laboring in love, remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry, lcms.org slash deaconess. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. For 160 years, St. John Lutheran Church Child Care and Preschool has been a congregation committed to bringing Christ's salvation to the people of Fredonia, Wisconsin. We gather to receive the Lord's gifts and His divine service to us each Sunday at 8 and 10.30. If you're in the northern suburbs of Milwaukee and looking for a traditionally liturgical church, please join us this Sunday. For more information regarding education or enrollment, visit us online at stjohnfredonia.org. Welcome back. We're talking about the religion of the left with Pastor Peter Burfind. He's author of a recent column for the Federalist titled, The Left Needs a Jesus. So, Peter, why does this Jesus of the left inevitably fail? It gets back to all the old Lutheran categories that we deal with. It's ultimately a Pelagian program. Pelagianism is an optimistic view of humanity and an optimistic view of what humanity can do for their own salvation. Leftism just takes that principle and makes it a communal or a collective thing. If I personally am able to 
save myself, then we collectively are able to make the world a better place. And psychologically, when it doesn't happen, we could go on. I mean, I think monasticism had this temptation, and there's a reason why the monastic orders had to go through revivals every other generation and have reformation. I think this is also how evangelicalism operates as well, which is why they have to have revivals every generation, because the truth is that we are sinner and saint. And the truth is that we do have a corrupted old Adam in us that will never be made perfect or made made righteous other than through Christ, and that's by being given a new spirit, a new creation. And it places a burden on the soul, on the capacity for the soul to better itself and better the world, which is just not accurate, and it just fails, and I think that ends up becoming a mental health issue for them then. So why are conservatives generally more able to handle political defeat? And it gets to that very point, is because we don't look at politics as an extension of our religiosity. Leftism is a species of millenarianism. It's a species of Christian heresy, and it does satisfy a lot of the religious urgings of people who believe that it's our job to make the world a better place or our job to save ourselves. Well, if you don't have that, you don't have these overly high hopes on what politics and government can do. And so when that doesn't go your way, you're like, you go back to your church, you go back to your families, you go back to your job, to the things that give you meaning and purpose. And the left doesn't have that because they put all their eggs in the basket of what politics can do for them. What do you mean by a mentally healthy humility before the unknown? So I, I wrote that phrase, mentally healthy humility before the unknown, in the context of the idea that the left believes that they can know the telos of history. I use that word telos. What is telos? Telos is the Greek word for end. And when you talk about the telos of history, it has to do with what's the goal, what's the end of history. And as I argue in the, in the essay, when you have a clear understanding where God ends and you begin, which is the, the flesh and blood of Christ, you recognize that there's certain things that we are not granted entry into knowing. God ends where Jesus' flesh and blood ends. And Christ himself is the man that ascended into heaven and ascended into the transcendent realms. And he has chosen what to reveal about that transcendent realm in the Gospels. And that we can know. But there's certain things that we are not given to know, among which Jesus specifically says are the telos of history, meaning the day and the hour no one knows. Where is God taking the world? Where is he taking history? Why is he allowing Russia to invade Ukraine? Why is he allowing North Korea to have a nuclear weapon? We don't know the answers to these questions, which calls upon us to have humility. And I think the left has more of an attitude of, you know, they keep on talking about this being on the right side of history and so-and-so is trying to turn back the clock. And it's like, turn back the clock from what? Or how do you know where history is going so that you, know, you can determine who's on the wrong side of history? How can they possibly know that? And so I think Christians are called upon to have a more humility before where, where God is taking the world, because we are just not given to know these things, because we have a very clear line where God ends and we begin, which is the flesh and blood of Christ. In that vein, what role does the Eucharist play in this worldview? Well, the Eucharist carries over that whole concept that 
in Christ, we have a clear line where God ends and we begin, and that is the flesh and blood of Christ. Well, that is exactly what the Eucharist is. The church continues on what that means for us in today's world. Okay, so this gets into a little bit of the difference between the alien and the primary work of God. The primary work of God, God's heart, so to speak, is manifest in Christ. And today I would say manifest in the Eucharist. What is Christ? What is, what is the heart of God? What does he think toward us? He's giving his son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And the Eucharist testifies to that event and carries it forward, delivering it to today. The alien work of God is all those things that we can't know. Like, where is history going? Like, why did this hurricane happen here and there? And, and is God punishing or what's he doing? These are just things we cannot know. And so I think the Eucharist and the church lets us know what God's true intent is and things that are beyond that. We're just not given to know, and that's where, where humility is called for. So what's the false comfort of the left's Gnostic Jesus? Again, I would go back to that Pelagian understanding of humanity. The, the false comfort is that we can be Jesus. We can bear the mantle or the archetype of Jesus, and we can first save ourselves, and then collectively we can save the world. What's the true comfort of the real embodied Jesus? The true comfort is we know the heart of God in Christ. We know the heart of God. We don't have to have any doubt. We don't have to wonder. If we believe we have a a glimpse or an insight into the underlying ideological reality of the world, and that fails us, it doesn't destroy our entire understanding of God. We can still say, you know, I don't know what God is doing outside of Christ, but in Christ, I know what he's doing for me. He is loving me. He's giving himself for me. And he's promising that he's going to return one day and take me to be with him. And everything else that happens, we don't know why he's doing it, but we know that he's working it for the good of those who love him. Pastor Peter Burfind is our guest. We've been talking about the religion of the left and we'll turn to Wokeism 101 right after the break. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Are you ready for war? Are you ready to stand firm in Christ against all odds? Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Yes, yes, you are ready because God has made you ready. Your hope is built on Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. 
all your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Have you thought about eternal life? When does it begin? What is eternal life? Well, your eternal life does not begin when your body, earthly body, fails and is laid into the grave. It begins, in fact, in the waters of holy baptism where you were tied to the death of Christ and in him you were raised. To learn more about this topic of eternal life, pick up your copy of the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Your lifeline to the Lutheran worldview. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is it hard? Yes. Will it challenge you? Absolutely. Is it a blessing from God for you and those you will serve without question? Dr. Lawrence Rast, president of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. The pastoral ministry is all of these things, and that's why Concordia Theological Seminary exists to form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Men from all over the world with a variety of unique backgrounds come to our campus to receive faithful training that will equip them for the challenging but blessed work of serving as pastors in Christ's church. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Christ-Centered Worship, Confessional Theology, Lutheran Community, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thanks to Redeemer Lutheran Church in Jackson, Wyoming, Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia, and Redeemer Lutheran Church in St. Cloud, Minnesota for recently renewing their congregational sponsorships. Your confessional Lutheran Church can become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor by pledging $1,000 to support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. You'll find a congregational sponsorship flyer on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the outreach of Issues Etc. in 2023. We're talking about Wokeism 101. Pastor Peter Burfind is our guest. Peter, when was this term woke first coined? The term woke came from some female rapper in the late 90s, I think. And I can't remember the name. She used it in a very benign context. I think it was in the context of like, like I'm woke to your evil ways, boyfriend, you know, ex-boyfriend. I'm woke to what you're doing. I'm aware of what you're doing. But it's come to mean something completely Gnostic, quite frankly. And in our context today, in the context of race, it feeds off the critical, critical theory and critical race theory, a subspecies of that, that basically says that there is an underlying reality to the world that certain people are aware of. They have a consciousness to it, an underlying reality. And that reality is that all of human relations are based on power networks. And those that have the power are ultimately at top. And they determine the constellation of symbols that the rest of us live in. And they determine the fabric of reality that we live in And once you're woke, you realize that, oh, that doesn't have to be the reality. So for instance, someone might say the underlying reality is that 
sex is just a, a binary construct, meaning certain people say that male and female is the way it is. And when you're born, the moment you're born, we all grow up and under those constructs. And we're grown up to believe that there's such a thing as male and female. And all the little artifacts of our culture signify that binary. You know, there's a male and female bathroom. There's male and female clothing. There's male and female toys. There's male and female roles. Well, when you're woke, you realize that we are a transcendent self or a divine spark, the Gnostics would say, who just happens to be in this physical body that happens to have sexual organs. Well, those sexual organs don't determine what I am. I'm woke to the fact that gender is a complete construct and I can be whatever I want to be. You were the first guest that I recall who, during an interview, used the term woke. When did you first start seeing this word reemerge as what it is today? Well, that was 2016 or 17. I remember as soon as I saw it, I, I said, this is exactly what I've been talking about. Because, I mean, okay, so in the Gnostic myth, everybody born in this world, born in the flesh, the whole world is just a big illusion. It's fake. It's not real. It's a cosmic mistake created by a lesser God. And when you're born, you think that this is the real world. You think that this is the way it is. You think that there's trees outside, that gravity is a thing, that there's laws of scarcity. You just kind of make all these assumptions. Well, according to the Gnostic myth, you are asleep to the truth of the world, that you are a divine spark fallen into this world. So a big part of the Gnostic experience is that you have to become awakened from a slumbering spark trapped in your flesh. And once you become awakened, that's the beginning of your resurrection or your salvation. So when I started seeing this term woke, I'm like, there it is. That's what I've been talking about for years here. It's coming full circle now. The woke revolution is at hand. Once you realize that, you can predict everything that's going to happen. You can predict that gender will be thrown aside. Anything imposed on us from the physical realm is going to be seen as a false construct that we can cast off, which explains the, the negativity towards history, the rejection of history, the destroying and destruction of icons and institutions. I mean, this is what leftism is. It's a negating force. They don't have no idea what they're going to put in its place, but all they know is that everything around us is a fake construct that needs to be destroyed. So describe in a little more detail wokeness or woke ideology. So woke ideology is based on the idea that there is a hidden substructure of reality that nobody is really aware of, that there's a sort of hidden reality that people cannot detect, cannot see, because we're prevented by our physicality. Our physicality traps us into a certain given time and place, traps us in, in a particular country, in a particular church, in a particular gender, in a particular family. And to be woke is to recognize that there is a transcendent reality that is our true reality. And once you become woke to that, once you become woke to the inner substructure of reality, you start to recognize that all these things that you think are you, that think are reality, are in fact just fake things that you can destroy or get rid of. And it, you know, it, it explains the whole kind of existential storyline, which is, you know, I'm a teenager and, you know, my family's telling me this, I go to this church, you know, I'm told I'm a girl or a boy. 
Well, once you become woke or once you become aware, you start to destroy all those things. Like, ah, I'm not going to listen to your mom. You know, I don't want to go to church anymore. I'm going to find my own way. And so you find your own way and you, you find that there's nothing there, really. And that's the problem that I think happens on the left and with this woke ideology is it's easy to destroy, easy to be nihilistic and see everything as an illusion or false and fake. It's very difficult to figure out what you're going to put in its place that doesn't end up falling and being just the same thing, but run by different people. For example, you ditch your parents as, oh, they're hopelessly, you know, unwoke and they're, they don't tell me who I am. Well, you get rid of them. Well, who's going to be the next authority in your life now? You know, it might be, you know, somebody on TikTok that you wouldn't trust anybody to. So give us some more examples of wokeness in our culture. Well, I mean, I talked about the gender thing. I mean, the, the idea that there's an underlying reality to gender, that, that we have a divine unisexual self that has nothing to do with biology. I think race has fallen for that. And I think race is really a subspecies of Marxism. The idea that there's a, there's a center of power that rules the world and puts people in certain places and you become woke to the fact that this is something that can be torn down. But you know, Marxism, gender ideology, and again, I would honestly, I would put just about all modern philosophy in that category, save maybe Nietzsche. But this whole approach of saying, what is the real meaning of the world? What's the meaning of the world? Well, I'm going to sit in a room or I'm going to start studying and I'm going to find that underlying reality to the world. And once I find it, once I discover it, well, I'm going to write a 8,000 page tome on it. And then I'm going to have students and acolytes who are going to get that hidden meaning of the world. And then we're going to start a movement, you know, a philosophical movement or a political movement. And then those that are with us are the elect. They're the smart ones. They're the elite. And those that aren't part of it, and this is also a big part of wokeness, you have to drink their Kool-Aid first before you can even, that's your ticket in to being able to even discuss things is you have to drink their underlying understanding of reality. You got to understand their Kool-Aid. And it's kind of a paradox because if you disagree with them, well, you're disagreeing with them because, well, you haven't drunk the Kool-Aid. <laughs> your disagreeing is only proving their system in the first place, and it just becomes this paradoxical vortex. How has wokeness influenced Christianity? I would argue wokeness actually began as a Christian thing, and it, it's related to the born-again experience, which in Greek is palingenesia. And we understand that, and historically Christianity has understood this, a very clear incarnational thing that carries over this idea that we know where God ends and we begin. Baptism is an external, physical, watery thing that happens, at which point you are born again, become a member of the church, and now grow in, in that faith, or the faith begins to form you. Well, there's also this idea, and again, it began as basically a Christian idea, that palingenesia is more like this glimpse, this woke experience, this glimpse of the underlying reality of the world. So I would argue that wokeness throughout history has kind of started in Christian circles. And very often you see that in Christian movement, wherever you have a movement of people who believe that they've got the inner track or the inner secret of where history is going or what God is doing, they start a movement and they get a bunch of people that hop on board the movement, the elect. And then it ends up breaking down, but then someone else carries forward the flame, so to speak. But all these movements, like progressivism, was started out as a social gospel movement, which started out as a revival movement. 
transcendentalism, which is a very you know woke understanding of the world, happened in Puritan England and, and kind of started out in Harvard and spawned from a very puritanical way of looking at things. And Puritans were millenarians who, who had that same woke ideology. So it's very much a Christian thing. And that's why I would say leftism is a species of Christian heresy. Is then woke ideology in any way compatible with creedal Christianity? No. <laughs> I like that phrase, creedal Christianity. Our creed is rooted on the notion that there is an external truth, and it is something that is witnessed. Every article of the creed, at least the second article of the creed, I'd even argue all the articles of the creed, are witnessed by two or three witnesses. Between the transfiguration, between the role of Luke, between the role of uh, all the disciples and resurrection, the things of the creed are all testified and witnessed by witnesses, which affirms what we say in the Eighth Commandment, that there is an external truth rooted in the physical realm that can be testified to. And as long as we maintain that, we're able to have dialogue, we're able to discuss. Two people can discuss about whether they see a black cat walking across the lawn or not, because it's an external thing. But once you add wokeness in, now you're adding that whole idea that you can only understand something if you're woke to its hidden underlying reality. Now, the funny thing is, in Christianity, we kind of have that in the sense that you can't understand or understand Scripture outside of the Holy Spirit and Christ. However, and this is why I find the, the example of the Bereans in the book of Acts so hugely important, the Bereans. Paul comes to Berea, teaches in the synagogue, and it says the Bereans were more noble than Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. And that's the nature of credo Christianity is there's no elitism. There's no, I have a better understanding than you because I've got the secret wisdom. I've got the secret understanding. As Christ said, what I proclaim to you in the, in the secret, proclaim on the rooftops. That's Christianity. And that's credo Christianity. What can you tell us about your latest resource called A Year Crowned with Goodness? A couple of years ago, I was deployed over in Romania, and I wanted to set a devotional schedule for myself. So what I did is my goal was to write devotions based on the historic gospels, the gospels from the historic lectionary, and every day write a meditation on that particular gospel, but address some of these ideas that I've been talking about, addressing some of these Gnostic ideas. And what an eye-opener that was. Kind of what was going on behind that is when I was researching for my book, Gnostic America, but I talk about a despairing topic and I'm reading this stuff and it's just getting me down. And, and you know, very often I had to take comfort in just the word of God and the gospels. So I finally thought I'd do that. I just, you know, start from the premise of the positive and, and address Gnosticism from that angle. And it, it delivered. And the name of the, of the series is A Year Crowned with Goodness. And to me, this addresses probably one of the main issues when you're dealing with Gnosticism. The Gnostic wakes up in the morning and looks at the world as a fallen, broken, bad, evil place. And it's, he needs to escape from it. He needs to escape from himself and escape from the world. But his mind is just, whole, is just shrouded in this depressing view of the world. When well, you look at our faith, it's the exact opposite. Not that the world has fallen, but 
Christ has ascended and sits at God's right hand, and he has conquered over all things, and he has made everything new, and he has given us this gift by the Holy Spirit, which is to say that through the lens of the Eucharist, through the lens of the church, we are able to look at the world and see a, a world full of the goodness of the Lord. And I think that's a game changer. We don't have that compulsion to save the world. We don't have that compulsion to escape the world. We can start talking about vocation and the good that God is working, even in my broken family or in my broken body. And like I say, I think that can be a game changer. You can purchase A Year Crowned with Goodness on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Pastor Peter Burfind is pastor of Agnes Day Lutheran Church in Marshall, Michigan, and Our Savior Lutheran Church in Union City, Michigan, author of the book A Year Crowned with Goodness, and a recent column for The Federalist titled The Left Needs a Jesus. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you, Pastor. We will discuss some myths about eternal life with Pastor Roger Peters. He's author of a column for the latest issue of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled Eternal Misconceptions. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about LFL's Conference for Adults, LFL at the March, and the Y for Life Youth Conference in Washington, D.C. The registration deadline is December 15th. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. This new resource will help you navigate God's Word with clarity and confidence. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number 1 800 325 3040 or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. As we prepare for the Advent season this year, it's time for some contemplation. Your Christmas are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Don't celebrate another Christmas hearkening back to the age of glitter balls. See Ad Crusom's beautifully designed Christmonds together with our book describing how they fit into the church here. Visit adcrusom.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois is hosting its annual Sausage Supper on Sunday, November 13th. Carry-out meals are available beginning at 11.30 Sunday morning until 5.30 Sunday evening. St. Paul Lutheran is located three miles off of Interstate 55 on Old Route 66. St. Paul Lutheran's Carry-out Sausage Supper, 11.30 a.m. through 5.30 p.m. Sunday, November 13th in Hamill, Illinois. 